Good morning. I just um, I really appreciate the, the video and the reminder as we start our Christmas season. How many, how many of you have, are doing any kind of Advent calendar? Anybody? Raise your hand. Doing an Advent calendar? Okay, this is our Christmas season. Um, this is the beginning of Advent. It seems like we just get done with Thanksgiving and like here we are. We're in the Christmas season, which is, which is great. There's not a, there's not a big pause. Uh, we get a chance to just kind of like enjoy, enjoy our time this Christmas. Um, when Ken asked me to, to speak a, number, a couple of weeks ago, a number of weeks ago, um, I really kind of thought I knew where I was going. He asked me uh, the theme this year all centers around Christmas carols. And I chose uh, the carol Silent Night as to be part of my theme as far as where I was going. And I kind of thought I knew where everything was going until uh, Zach kind of sent me a copy of that video. Now, let me just say this. It's not necessarily the video that caused me to stop and think, but it really is kind of like the theme of our Christmas series uh, this year as far as the weary world rejoices. And um, I, I had to kind of like stop. And, you know, Thanksgiving came along and yeah, I got distracted by other things and everything else like that. But Friday morning, I got to work early and um, watched the video again, just a brief video. And it kind of began to like brew and kind of ferment in me uh, Friday and then uh, most of the day yesterday. And really, I just felt like the Holy Spirit leading me a completely different direction. So, you know, let, like, let's, let's go a different direction with this, uh, keeping the same things that I've been thinking about, but that theme as far as of a weary world. It's where a lot of us are this morning. A lot of us are in that place of, it's kind of like a weary world that we live in. For some of us, it's a weary time of year. And I don't know about you, I don't know what makes you weary this year or this time of year. But as I sat there uh, a little bit during the week, especially Friday morning, as I began to think it through, there was definitely some things that came up in my mind as far as what makes this a, a weary world for me, for us. These are some things that may be true for you as well this morning. What makes it weary? Well, maybe it's, maybe it's Thanksgiving has made you weary today, this morning as you sit here. I mean, all the preparation that goes into Thanksgiving and the shopping and the getting ready and the cooking and everything else like that. The trips to the airport. How many of you made trips to the airport? The trips to the airport on Thanksgiving season, I made three. Isn't that fun sitting in traffic? You know, um, Maybe it's the family that gets together and how much you love your family, but they can just flat out make you weary. Now, I'm not saying that was true for me. I'm not saying that. It was probably, no, no, I'm not, I won't go there. So, um, but maybe Thanksgiving made you weary. Um, maybe it's, for some of you, it's your jobs and the job situation and everything that's going on around you and the people that you work with or the schedule that you have to keep. Maybe it's your job or that whole situation. Maybe this morning what makes you weary is all the events of the past year. We're coming to the end of the year where, where a lot of the news uh, stations and channels and websites and everything else like that begin to 
begin to process the top stories or the big stories of the big events of the past year, of 2019. I think especially of some of the school shootings and some of the other violence that has taken place this year. I don't know about you, but you just get weary of all the events that we, that we have in our world. Or maybe, maybe it's the politics. Maybe you're just tired of the impeachment process and the the, the bickering and the name calling and and like and who do you even trust or the news channels you know that are so opinionated and I don't know I, I don't know about you but I've really grown weary and we're entering into a whole year of this political process and the election year and everything else like that and it's just for me for me and maybe for you I've just grown weary. Stop listening. Stop watching. Stop reading. Because it's the same thing. And you just, you don't even, really, you don't know what's quote-unquote fake news or real news half the time anymore. Or maybe, maybe it's the weariness of everyday life. Friday, as I was thinking through, I, I came across this online and This is just a a small section of what I came across, but it just kind of hit home to me. And I thought, you know, I'm I'm just going to read this because there's a lot of truth here regarding being weary. Weary of mounting bills, mounting debt, mounting inboxes, mounting anxiety about all manner of things. Weary of the ghosts of technology and connectivity that we can never escape, the ominous dings of texts and push notifications. Weary of woes of aging bodies, troubled minds, restless souls, the fallenness of all things. Weary of the friends who disappoint, the heroes who fall, the leaders who sacrifice principles for power. Weary of the to-dos that never end and the rest that never lasts. Uh, I just... I feel some of the weariness of those things. (laughs) I feel the weariness of the aging body. Sorry to say, like it's just like, like I don't think of myself as old, but it's I'm beginning to realize it is. You know, I am getting there, getting there. Now I'm not quite there yet, but getting there. I think of the friends that have disappointed. I think of spiritual leaders, pastors that have fallen and struggled. I think of churches that have split. I think of so many different things, all these different things that just cause us to be weary. I'm sure we could go on and on. Yet, what I've been considering these last couple of weeks is the weary world in which they lived at the time of Jesus' birth. So what I want you to do is I want you to kind of like put yourself in that place. Put yourself in that time frame for a minute. and Just think about the weariness that they faced. First thing I want you to know about that is like it had been 
hundred years since there had been any groups of miracles, any real miracles. When you read in the Old Testament, you notice that miracles, whenever they come, they tend to happen in clusters or in groups. And, and it's like there's, there's a whole group of them that really announce that there's something going on. A miracle is something that cannot be explained by, in natural terms. It is a supernatural reality that basically says God has intervened in human history, in human life, and God has said, this is of me. There's two major clusters or periods of, mi- of miracles in the Old Testament. One surrounds Moses and the coming out of Egypt and the coming into the promised land. And there's a whole group of miracles. We could go, most of you know some of those stories. We could go on, on about those and we could spend some time there looking at the miracles of Moses. And it's like phenomenal. I mean, even today, if you were to talk to Jewish people today that don't know Jesus Christ, they all know about Moses. And the promises that were made, but the miracles that took place. The other cluster or group of miracles kind of surrounds the two people, the two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah doesn't die. Elisha then takes over because Elijah goes up into heaven. But there's a whole group of miracles that takes place during that time where God demonstrates his power in trying to bring the nation of Israel back to himself. Like, hey, you've lost your way. Come back to me. And God proves that it's his message against all the other prophets, that it's his message through these prophets in the miracles that took place. And basically after that, they stopped. Now, there's, uh, some people would argue there's a couple like individual ones that take place, you know. You know, book of Daniel, they say, oh, the book of Daniel, you have miracles there. Well, you, you kind of have two, the lion's den and the fiery furnace. But in reality, the, you know, miracles stopped 800 years. And if you can imagine living at that time, the time just before Jesus' birth, 800 years since miracles, you're not necessarily expecting them. You're not looking for them, but you're just weary of the fact that you, there's been none. And where is God? It's been 500 years since an angel showed up. Angels show up in the Old Testament, but the last angel that we have recorded in the Old Testament before the time of Jesus that shows up is the angel that shows up during the time of Daniel in the fiery fiery furnace. After that, Chronologically speaking, there's no other angels that show up. 500 years, no angels showing up. To now, By the way, I love the story in Daniel. I love the story of the fiery furnace because Nebuchadnezzar, whenever he looks down in the fiery furnace and he sees the guys walking around, and he sees four. Do you notice he only invites three of them out? Did you ever notice that? He doesn't want to have anything to do with the fourth one that's in there. But there's no angels that show up. Five years. 400 years. You might be more familiar with the 400 years of silence. Now, Malachi is the last book we have in our Old Testament, and chronologically, it's the last prophecy God gave. It's the last time that God spoke for 400 years. 
From the time Malachi closes up his book, and it's a really cool prophecy as he closes up his book in chapter 4 of Malachi, he says in the last two verses of, of, of the book, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the, of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And there's some debate among scholars as to what's that refer- what that's referring to, whether that's the second, like just before the second coming during the tribulation period, where Elijah and Moses come. And if you've ever read those, that passage, it's, it's really kind of cool. But a lot of people believe this is really the prophecy regarding John the Baptist, who comes in the, the message, who comes in the likeness of Elijah to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And from the time of that prophecy... It's been 400 years of silence. Where is God? Hasn't spoken. No genuine prophets. No genuine word of God. 400 years. What's been going on during this time? Well, actually, you basically know some of what's been going on during this time. During that 400 years, you basically know. I mean, Pastor, just, Pastor Ken just stopped as far as he went through the book of Haggai, right? And I'm probably going to say Haggai, Haggai or Haggai. I'm going to mispronounce it just like everybody else um, in multiple ways and everything. But there is this time where they've come back into the land. They're back in Israel after being in captivity, after being in exile. They're back in the land, and uh, we've learned during our study together that the temple hasn't been finished, and the people aren't worshiping, and there's stuff that's going on that shouldn't be going on. And Haggai prophesies, and that's during the time of the Medo-Persian Empire. The, sometimes it's called the Persian Empire because they were the greater one, but the Medes and the Persians. Um, and before them, you have the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and really destroys Jerusalem and takes them away into exile. And they have come back under the Medes and the Persians, And if that wasn't bad enough, in 332 B.C., the Greeks move in. Alexander the Great and his four generals, they move in and they take over and all kinds of stuff happens. The Egyptians come in and there's there's like an occupation there. And then the the Greeks and kind of like whenever Alexander the Great dies, it's, it's split up into four different, the four generals have four different like empires, but all under the Greek empire and all kinds of stuff is happening. And they're, they're worse than the Medes and the Persians who are, were worse than the Babylonians. It's, it's all bad. And if, if that's not bad enough in 63 BC, Rome moves in. The most brutal of all of all of the four empires during that time period. And now you're sitting there under Rome and you have nothing to say and nothing to do. And Rome's iron fist has come down. Um, the rod and the scepter have been removed. Scripture talks about as far as the ability to rule and the right to do to exercise justice, no death penalty like the you just they didn't have anything going on and they're weary you would be weary sitting there during this time period and you're wondering what in the world's going on where is god in all this 
Now, please don't be mistaken or don't misunderstand the fact that there's nothing going on because during that 400 years, there's plenty of fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, God spoke in, in that prophecy and God made promises and things were happening. I mean, I think especially of the Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the Greek rulers that comes in and desecrates the temple and and does all kinds of horrendous stuff and causes the Maccabean revolt so that there's a brief time that it seems like Israel's back in charge and nah, that, that, that all gets shut down again. Especially when the Romans move in. So things are going on, but silence. Silent night. Because things just seem dark. And there's this promise of a Messiah. Where? When? Who? There's this growing thought among the Jewish people, especially among the the women called the desire of women. Have you ever heard that before? The desire of women. They knew a Messiah was coming, and there's there's this idea among the women who are... Not really all that important in society. Have no real value other than property to some degree. But there is this desire that they have that maybe, maybe God would use them to give birth to the coming Messiah. And that's a real growing theme, a real growing thought as far as during that time that maybe God would use them to bring the Messiah to life. And give birth. So there's this hope. But when? How many of us like to wait? Anybody? How many people really love to wait? Because we don't live in a culture that likes to wait for about anything, do we? Right? Nobody likes to wait. They've been waiting for a long time. I mean, I remember growing up. I remember uh, waiting for Christmas. Some of you are waiting for Christmas. But the, the, the fallacy of that is you know when it's coming. You have constant reminders. You're not going to forget. You're not going to go, oh, I forgot it. I missed. But I remember, like, especially growing up, my, uh, my parents told me, like, my grandparents were coming to visit. I love my grandparents. Grandma and Papap, and they were coming to visit, and you would be there waiting, and we're not sure when they're coming, because they were like they were retired. They you know they didn't have any rush. It was a in those days it was literally almost a seven hour drive from where they were in Pennsylvania to where we were in New Jersey at the time. And you know, and we kind of thought we they're they're coming, and it's like well I, I know. Th- like, and my parents, you had to come in soon, and, and then they didn't show up that day. And there were no cell phones, by the way. <laughs> There's no way of going, hey, Grandma, Papa, where are you? How soon? Are you on your way? Where are you at? Oh, Papa's getting tired. You're just going to stop and stop, stay overnight. And the waiting and the disappointment and the wondering... There's nothing compared to what you would be going through at this time. 
if you were in Israel? Nothing. And it's just silent night. And you wait. Listen, Paul has a great line in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. So when Paul says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But when the fullness of time had come. If you were to look it up in your Bible, that's from the ESV, by the way. If you were looking it up in your Bible, I mean, I like that phrase, the fullness of time. But some of the translations, one of the translations says, but when just the right time had come, or at just the right time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And, like, and we kind of know, know the story, most of us. But at just the right time. Do you, I mean, like, what does that mean? Like, the cool part is, is when the Greeks came in, the Greeks made everybody learn Greek. Alexander the Great developed what was called the Koine Greek, the, the guttural, like, it's just like the lousy Greek, not the classical Greek, that everybody had to learn in order, to, if you were going to do business under the, the Greek empire, so that everybody in the known world at that time spoke one language, Greek. So that whenever Jesus came and the scripture was recorded, it was written in a language that everybody could know about. Romans came along, and because they were so brutal in, in battle, but they built roads so they could travel very quickly. So whenever it came time for Jesus to come, the message, after his death, burial, resurrection, and everything else, the message could go out and could go to the, almost to the known world because you could travel on Roman roads that had already been built. At just the right time. We could go on and we could talk about the situation and the circumstances of Jesus' birth, but at just the right time, and as frustrated and as weary as the world was, he came at just the right time. Isn't that cool? Paul records that in Galatians. But take a look with me this morning. Uh, There are some events that take place in the gospel accounts. We're not going to go through all the events. But one of the first things I want you to notice in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, I want you to notice what begins to happen. Luke 1, beginning in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abiah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. 
Now listen, I love Luke. Luke is a phenomenal historian. Luke gives us details we probably wouldn't think to include. And he gives us specific details that basically are able to be checked out. Gives validity to the historical account. Look, this is no fairy tale. This is no made-for-TV movie. This is nothing but actual historical fact. I love the detail that he talks about. I mean, first of all, Zechariah is in a certain group of priests. Both he and his wife were from the Aaron, descendants of Aaron, both in the priesthood family. But he was with Abiah. He was of the priestly division of Abiah. There's 24 divisions. And they would take turns. They had duty. They would go to Jerusalem. They didn't live there. But they would go to Jerusalem and they would serve for a week. I love that Luke brings up that God's view of them was that they were righteous, blameless as they served. It just so happens while he's there... He is chosen not by people because he was amazing and he was great or he was old. He was revered, respected. He was chosen by lot. Okay, we'll draw straws. Oh, you get to do it today. Or you get to do it this week. In the time of incense, whenever they would take the coals off of the altar where they were offering the sacrifices and they would bring it in and put it on the table and they would offer that as a, as a sacrifice and as a prayer of worship to God, he was able to do that. And from what we see in the description, there's a lot of people outside, which means it was probably the evening time. There was a morning and an evening. And there's a lot of people outside. And he goes in and he shows up. And all of a sudden, by the way, the angel shows up where? On the right side. <laughs> like, how specific is, is Luke? On the right side. 500 years. And all of a sudden, what? An angel shows up. Uh, Luke chapter 1, now verse 26. As we kind of skip down a little bit. Uh, a little bit more familiar passage. So, uh, by the way, you can go back and you can read the rest of the story because it's really kind of cool what happens to Zechariah. Anybody know the story? If you know the story, it's really kind of cool what happens to him because he, like, he had the gall not to believe the angel, but like we'll, some other time. But in the sixth month, Luke 1, 26 and 27, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, by the way, Elizabeth is the wife, the barren one, right? The one who couldn't have child. She is now pregnant. By the way, she's possibly like 60, 70, 80. Scholars kind of like scholars vary between those ages. 60 years old means you're past that point of bearing children. I kind of get that and understand that because God did not bless us, Amy and I, with children. And we're kind of past that. Six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel. Now, this is a real specific angel as to which one shows up. To Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Oh, we know this story. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So what would you do if an angel showed up this morning? What would your response be? He just kind of showed up over here by the tree. By the way, like every time, especially in these two circumstances, but every time an angel shows up, 
What is one of the first things he has to say? Or he or she? What is one of the first things the angel has to say? Fear not. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? Because, by the way, uh, with Zechariah, the, the Greek word there is so strong, and as often is when an angel shows up, it's the word terrified, extremely terrified. Some of you would fall on the floor and hide. You wouldn't go, oh, that's such a cute little angel, because they weren't little. Some of you would run out the door if you could move. The rest of us would probably just be frozen in place, uh, just like Zechariah. Oh, no. What now? What? Like, I don't know. Maybe it's only me, but I'd be thinking, what did I do? Oh, no. Because, by the way, angels are often... Affiliated with judgment? <laughs> like, a little scary thought there. Most of us would be frightened to death. And sometimes when an angel shows up, it basically says that they fall on the ground as if they were dead. We'd be scared. And an angel shows up. But by the way, 500 years later, what? An angel starts showing up. And it happens more and more. Because you know the rest of the Christian story. Does an- do angels show up? Angels show up. By the way, miracles start to happen. Elizabeth gets pregnant, conceives. Mary has a, gets pregnant as a virgin. Miracles start to happen. You know the stories. And if you were there during that time and some of these things begin to happen, you begin to wonder, maybe begin to wonder what in the world's going on. We know the story of what in the world's going on. We're not going to take the time to look at all the different events, but as we come to this Christmas season, We recognize that we live in a weary world as the day. But we have a chance to celebrate the fact that a weary world rejoices. We know that as weary as our world is, we know the good news. We have the opportunity to rejoice. And maybe for us, instead of putting together the lists of all the things that we're weary of or what causes us to be weary, we need to put together lists of what causes us to rejoice. And maybe we need to take Thanksgiving and combine it with this Advent season that we're beginning today, December 1st. And maybe we need to start making a list of the things that we're grateful for the things that cause us to rejoice. There's all kinds of people around us that have no reason to rejoice to some degree because they do not understand. They kind of think Christmas is this cute little story and we get presents and give presents and Santa, Santa's coming next week, I know, but, the, you know, like, but... 
I kind of think that's what it's all about. We're missing the point. And in fact, during this Christmas season, rather than being silent, we need to be vocal. We need to let the world around us know that even though it is a weary world that we live in, we have the reason that we can rejoice. And we should be rejoicing. They should see it in us. So maybe on our Advent calendar, and even if we don't have one, maybe we need to start one. Maybe we need to make a list, one thing each day, something new each day for the next 24 days leading up to the 25th. Now, I know Jesus wasn't necessarily born on December 25th, but that's the day we've set aside and chosen to celebrate it. But maybe for these next 24 days, we need to make a li- begin to make a list of the things that cause us to rejoice and the reason that we have to rejoice and the blessings that God has given us, the things that we're grateful for. And begin to make that list as individuals, as families, maybe as a church. That we need to celebrate and we need to rejoice in the midst of a weary world. Because they need to know. There are people around us that have no real as far as what it's really about. And listen, we live in the South right now that is like the most, quote-unquote, churched area I have ever lived in. And yet there's still plenty of people around me that either are missing it or just choose not to acknowledge it. That Jesus came so that we might have life and receive the adoption at just the right time when the fullness of time, God sent his son Jesus. So in these next 25 days, let's let's rejoice. Let's do something about it. And maybe we will have some people in our existence, in our world, that do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, do not recognize the reason for rejoicing maybe they too will come to know him and be able to rejoice with us. Let's pray together. Father, I come before you and I thank you for the way that you love us. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the fact that the 800 years and the 500 years and the 400 years all came to an end in the spectacular demonstration of your love for us. And that's what we celebrate during this Advent season, during this Christmas season. Lord, cause us, as we come to the end of this service, cause us to recognize that it is you that we serve and it is you that we love because you first loved us. Help us to understand that We have an opportunity and really a privilege to share that with other people around us. Help us to show the world how to rejoice when it's weary. Oh, Lord, we love you. And we give you all the praise for all that you will continue to do. In Jesus' name we pray.